So I'm really excited to share parts of my journey. Um, so I'll be sharing my story of being raised in a hardcore fundamentalist religious sect of Christianity. Um, it's pretty unconventional, um, so I'll share a bit about um, that group and how it affected me. And then um, just so you guys can get to know a bit about me, um, I currently work in mental health. Um, I studied nutrition in college, and I'm currently a diet tech. So um, I work in a partial hospitalization program. Um, so I get to be around a lot of people and help to heal um, uh, their minds and hearts and do what I can to uh, encourage compassion. So I'm very honored to be able to do that um, as a living. Um, so today we're going to continue our series on compassion. And today, the focus is going to be self-compassion. So just a refresher, um, I'd like to define compassion. Um, compassion means to suffer with. And so self-compassion means it's to suffer with ourselves. And in order to experience suffering with ourselves, we have to let ourselves feel our suffering. And so it's important to let ourselves feel in um, self-compassion. And it entails being warm and understanding toward ourselves when we suffer, fail, or feel inadequate, rather than ignoring our pain or consuming ourselves with self-criticism. Instead of mercilessly judging and criticizing ourselves for various inadequacies or shortcomings, Self-compassion means we are kind and understanding when confronted with personal failings. So a lot of us have a tendency to be very hard on ourselves. Maybe we've learned this from religion or from parents with really high expectations. But today we're going to talk about the importance of being a bit more gentle with ourselves. Um, so why is this important? Why should we practice self-compassion? Well, there's scientific evidence that shows that self-compassion leads to well-being. Um, an overwhelming body of research suggests that self-compassionate individuals suffer less and thrive more. Um, a key feature of self-compassion is lack of self-criticism. And we know that self-criticism is strongly related and is a predictor of anxiety and depression. Um, also, self-compassionate people report feeling more happiness than those who lack self-compassion, and they display higher levels of optimism, gratitude, and positive affect more generally. Now, another reason we should talk about and uh, realize the importance of self-compassion, not only because of uh, what science says, is because I believe this is what Jesus taught as well. Jesus taught us forgiveness, forgiveness of others, and I ultimately believe that this also applies to ourselves, that God forgives us for our mistakes and shortcomings, so we should also forgive ourselves. And so I also wanted to highlight the fact that, or the idea that God loves us, and um, what does that really mean, that God loves us? We, we say this in church a lot, 
but I just wonder if we take the time to think about what that actually means. When we say that we love someone, um, I think it, a lot of the time it means that we are committed to loving someone regardless of their ups and downs and exactly for who they are. I think that's a really important part of love is loving people for and accepting them for who they are. And so I think this applies to ourselves and how when we think about God loving us, I wonder, do we think about God loving our minds? A lot of us have um, a rough time with our minds and our thoughts, and maybe sometimes we hate our minds and we can't stand our minds. But I wonder if God's love applies to our minds. And also, does it apply to our bodies? Does God love our bodies as a part of who we are? If our bodies are a part of our being and our essence, then perhaps God loves our bodies exactly the way that they are and the way that they were created. And if we were made in the image of God, then we deserve love and respect um, towards our bodies, and we can also apply this to ourselves. So I just want to talk a bit about my religious background. Um, So as I said, I was born um, into this religious sect. Um, So it was started in the late 1800s by a guy named William Irvine. Um, They meet in homes, so they don't believe in meeting in church buildings because they believe that God um, lives in temple or doesn't dwell in temples built by hands or by man. And so they take it literally to mean only meet in homes. So no church building, no name associated with their fellowship that they claim. Although from the outside, they are referred to as the two by twos, um, the truth, the way. Um, There was an investigation done on this group um, by 60 Minutes in Australia um, about uh, last year, and they sort of uh, described what happens in the group. Um, But they're very discreet, like they don't publish any of their teachings online. They're told that um, no information exists about themselves online. They're pretty old-fashioned and traditional. They speak in Old English um, when they say prayers, like thee and thou, even like the teenagers who participate um, speak in that sort of old English. Um, There's lots of um, unwritten rules. So girls need to have really long hair. Um, They need to wear skirts. Um, They need to be morally upright, submissive, um, those types of traditional um, teachings. So an uh, an interesting thing about this group is that they claim that they are the only um, true church um, in the world today. So they believe that they are the direct continuation of um, the church that Jesus started with the 12 apostles. Um, So they call themselves um, God's family and God's children, but they don't see other Christians as the same. So they're very focused on just living their lives in their own group. And it's very, um, ultimately it becomes very self-centered, even though they do talk a lot about loving others and do talk a lot about the teachings of Christ. There's this focus of one's own performance all of the time, um, where it's really easy to get 
very self-absorbed, even though they're teaching self-denial. So um, they, they teach a lot about dying to yourself, um, repenting, taking up your cross. Very much it's um, do better, try harder. And they don't really preach about God's grace. I don't remember hearing about God's love being unconditional. Um, I know someone in the group, um, I asked them um, if they believe that God's love is unconditional. And they said, God's love is unconditional if we obey God's word. So um, they don't generally don't believe that it's unconditional. Um, so it's very fear-based, um, as a lot of churches are, um, a lot of fundamentalist churches, maybe Southern Baptist churches, um, you know, focus a lot on, you know, the judgment of God, the wrath of God, hell, like why it's important to um, spend time uh, working on ourselves and reading the Bible and praying and do, going to the meetings, all of these things. Um, so the image of God in that group was very, um, that God was angry, you know, the typical sort of story of a, a wrathful God um, needing to be appeased through the sacrifice of Jesus. And they really hammered in the doctrine of original sin. Um, this is the doctrine that says that we are all born flawed and defective and um, that Jesus uh, came to fix us and make us, um, what's the word? Um, worthy of God, of being seen by God. Um, so uh, the, the image of God uh, was uh, developed through this doctrine um, as opposed to the original blessing doctrine, which is um, taught in churches also, which is very different, believing that we were born good and that our inherent nature as humans is good and that we are worthy of love and um, good enough just as we are. Um, so there's these two different narratives that are both um, within the realm of Christianity. And I think that the narrative of um, we are good is uh, a lot healthier one to live our lives from than the ones that we are inherently bad. Um, so with this narrative of believing that at my core, um, I was essentially filthy rags to God, um, no matter what I did, no matter how hard I tried, no matter how hard I would repent and pray, I would always fall short um, because I still had evil in my heart. Um, so some of the verses that reinforced this for me um, well, well, I'll just say that um, I thought this way um, for from about the age of 10 when I decided to uh, be a devout member of this group till about, oh, 16 or 17. So um, the first verse is Matthew 5, verse 28. Um, let's see if we have that. Great. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Um, so I don't know about you guys, but this made me feel like it would be very, very hard to avoid sin if just 
the way that we looked at someone could indicate that we had sin in our heart. Um, so Mark 7, 20 through 23 says, and he said, um, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. Um, so again, this, this verse for me was just reinforcing the narrative that um, we're, we're dirty and that uh, we need to be clean. And um, so... Another common verse, I'll share one more verse, is Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Um, at the time when I heard this verse, it was often used to um, highlight that we can't trust ourselves, we can't trust our feelings. And... Um, I believe that this teaching right here um, leads to a lot of mental illness, believing that um, people's feelings are inherently bad and are untrustworthy. And I think it creates a lot of problems. Um, I see this first now as um, the writer just feeling that um, maybe they had, their actions were impure. Um, but... Um, not that their whole entire heart was polluted or contaminated. I don't know, but that's just how I see it now. Um, so, in a literalist, in value, so if a common doctrine is that you know the Bible is the infallible word, word of God, that all truth is in there. Um, so, being told that you know all of the truth that you need is in the Bible. Um, I, I believe that, and a lot of children do end up believing these things, um, as I imagine some of you guys have as well. Um, so, also, um, part of my story is that I actually believed that I had committed the unforgivable sin, which was blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So, um, I'm still confused about the original meaning of that, but what I thought it meant was that, you know, if you say, like, cuss words at God um, or, like, have, like, these blasphemous thoughts that you would never be forgiven um, and that, you know, you just have to suffer the consequences of that in the afterlife. So I had this profound hopelessness that it was too late and that no matter what I did, I was, I was going to be judged and punished for my sin. So this led to me being very, very, very depressed and living in a lot of fear. Um, I was terrified of the rapture, that Jesus would come back, and that my eternal suffering would begin. So um, some of these teachings can be really, really harmful. Um, and... There's, there's one um, mental illness, it's called scrupulosity, that um, can result from these types of teachings. Um, do we have the slide about scrupulosity? Awesome. 
Um, perfect. So this is essentially religious OCD. So um, a lot of people don't know that this is an actual um, legitimate mental illness, but um, it is. So the slide shows that um, some of the symptoms are fear of living in sin, belief of being unworthy of God's love, um, fear of not reading the scriptures enough, constant visits to places of worship, fear of not praying humbly or sincerely, and fear of having blasphemous thoughts. Um, so these types of teachings uh, created that, and um, it was really unhealthy. And so um, essentially, to summarize, um, you know, I just want to say not everything in that group was uh, so toxic and pathological, but a lot of the teachings were. Um, and so the message that sometimes gets highlighted is a message of unworthiness. And um, sometimes we can uh, begin to believe that we are unworthy of love if we hear a lot of these teachings. We've heard them growing up. And so... For me, um, the result of me believing these things sincerely was that I developed an eating disorder. Um, can we show the picture, please? Thank you. Um, so that was me in, uh, I think, freshman year in high school. So I uh, believed that if I couldn't please God, I would please man and get the perfect body. So I was so hopeless, had such low self-esteem that the only way I knew to make life better was to fix my outward appearance so at least I could get the approval of, of man and get some satisfaction out of life. So um, I decided to um, eat less and exercise more. And um, I became very obsessive with it. And um, these thought patterns and these intrusive voices became really, really loud in my head. And <clears throat> I began to believe that like, I had to burn off all of the calories that I ate in a day. Um, and so the, after I lost all of this weight, um, right there on uh, the picture on the left, I still believed that I was fat. Uh, you could see my collarbones, my hip bones. Um, I still I had body dysmorphia, and um, I couldn't believe that I was good enough even then. So um, I learned through all of this, that body acceptance comes from the inside, not from the outside, because I thought it came from the outside. And I thought once I would reach a certain mark, I would be happy, but it never happened. Um, the thoughts were creating my reality of being unhappy. And um, it didn't matter what I looked like because it, the inside was telling me that I still wasn't enough. So, I eventually, uh, how I got better was that my parents were threatening to put me into a treatment facility where I would need a feeding tube, and I felt really bad about the financial cost of this thing, this, what that would mean for our family, 
and um, I realized that this was consuming my whole entire life. I would spend most of my time counting up the calories that I had during the day and trying to compensate for those, making sure I was under like a certain number. And I was hiding food. I was very manipulative and sneaky. Um, and uh, I think a lot of this came from that core belief of um, that I wasn't good enough. The trance of unworthiness, which I'll talk a little bit more about later on. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about some um, eating disorder statistics. Um, so first of all, um, over these statistics are from the late 1900s. Um, so I imagine they're a bit different today. Um, but during those times, over 70% of adolescent girls experience body dissatisfaction and as high as 80% in college and university settings. This is an overwhelming majority of our females, um, youth, feeling that they don't like themselves for the way that they look. Um, and so I wanna say that um, less than 6% of people with eating disorders are medically diagnosed as underweight. Um, sometimes there's this idea that only people who um, look really skinny have eating disorders. Um, but I work in the field of eating disorders, and I have seen lots of people that appear at a healthy weight on the outside um, are actually malnourished and um, have these pathological um, thoughts that... Um, uh, contribute to them having um, an eating disorder. So it uh, is not always the case that someone who's really skinny has an eating disorder, and it's also not the case that if someone's not skinny that they don't have an eating disorder. So in our culture, uh, at least here in the West, it's apparent that body dissatisfaction is normal. Um, I think if we were to survey 100 people um, at the beach or at a mall or someplace, most people would say that they experience body dissatisfaction. Um, so currently, um, during this pandemic, there has been, uh, it, it's a lot harder for a lot of people with eating disorders um, to eat a lot of times. Um, teenagers, for example, uh, have more watch with their parents. Um, they're staying with their parents more at home. And so it's harder for them to sort of fall off the radar with these behaviors. And so sometimes uh, they're being more controlled and it it's just harder with uh, so many difficult factors during this time. So currently for residential facilities for eating disorders, um, so this is a 24 seven um, a day care facility around the nation. Um, They're all at max capacity and there's at least a month wait list um, for all of them for um, to admit people. Um, I know this because uh, we've had to refer some people out in our facility, which is a lower level of care, 
and um, there's no place available because we just have this huge problem going on and there just aren't enough resources um, to help folks out with this. Um, so there is a, is a lens um, of self-compassion um, to look through to see eating disorders. Um, I realized um, through, I follow several different um, accounts on Instagram of um, therapists and dietitians um, who have helped me to understand eating disorders. And um, I've learned that they are often a coping mechanism that sometimes people restrict food um, because it brings emotional relief to some people. Sometimes they're just having such intense emotions and intense thoughts that the only way to bring relief is to um, restrict food. Um, sometimes people engage in eating disorder behaviors um, because they intentionally want to hurt themselves. They desire to disappear. They want to um, go unnoticed and... Um, Yeah, those are some of the reasons. Um, so fast forward to this year, and I had the realization that I have spent most of my life living in the energy of inadequacy. So if all of our thoughts create uh, some sort of uh, like energy in our body, I realized that most of my thoughts that I had in my mind were causing me to live, like my reality was coming from a place of inadequacy and unworthiness. And it really broke my heart to realize that I had spent so much time living my life like this. And so um, I've been learning about how to undo that. Um, so um, I also realized that I became like the punitive God that I worshiped. Um, so I think, you know, within some um, fundamentalist sides of religion where their God is very, um, you know, just wrathful and angry and punitive all the time, that um, very harsh and uh, judgmental and critical, that that is how through um, hearing these ideas about God, people believe those things about themselves and they treat themselves that way. Um, so I realized that that was playing a role. Um, so there are some things that I've found to help this and I wanna share this today. So number one thing would be uh, self-compassion. So that's what we're talking about today. Um, and it includes radical self-acceptance. So this is, um, I believe radical means um, of the source, of the root. So this is um, accepting yourself from, for all of you, just the way that you are. And um, I began to start to do different meditations to help with this. Um, Tara Brock is a clinical psychologist, and she's a Buddhist um, meditation teacher, and she has a lot of um, videos on YouTube and podcasts about um, radical self-acceptance, and this personally has been an incredibly helpful 
um, exercise for me to help to just bring that energy of sufficiency and love to myself um, and to change my um, internal reality. So those meditations have helped. Um, there is a book that my therapist recommended um, that's based off of acceptance commitment therapy, um, which is one of the most effective um, treatments for anorexia nervosa we're realizing. Um, this book is called The Happiness Trap, Stop Struggling, Start Living um, by Russ Harris. Um, so in this book, they teach um, about cognitive flexibility and about acceptance and mindfulness and ways to relate to our thoughts um, in helpful healing ways. Um, a lot of times I've learned people um, weren't exactly taught how to relate to their thoughts in a healthy way. And a lot of times we just identify with all of the thoughts that we have without questioning um, if, if we want to identify with all of them. Um, so this book can be really helpful with that. And it was helpful for me. Um, so another way that I have learned self-compassion is by learning about trauma and sort of how hard experiences help people to, or, or sorry, how hard experiences um, make people have certain uh, behaviors that they're more prone to. Um, we know that people that experience an internally mean and cruel relationship with themselves often experienced a similar cruelty from someone else. So they're a parent, sibling, God. Um, and um, it's uh, said that this most likely comes from a place, a, a part of ourselves that is trying to protect ourselves, to love ourselves and care for ourselves. So um, I, think and would like to suggest that um, are some of these these sorts of um, behaviors like perfectionism is actually a self-protective mechanism. And when we begin to understand how um, perfectionism um, helps people to get through life, um, it seems that it's easier to extend compassion. Um, when we understand how uh, that is really just our body and our mind's best way of um, coping with certain experiences by developing these habits. Um, so, for example, I was mean to myself in order to please God. I thought that seeing myself as unworthy and defective was the truth. And so I was mean to myself in order to earn love and acceptance for myself. By editing my body to look a certain way and acting morally upright so that I could be safe, ultimately. Um, <clears throat> I could be safe from the wrath and the judgment of God and ultimately of others. So. I believe that it was through these self-critical behaviors um, that it would actually lead me to feeling 
the most loved and accepted and safe. And so um, that having that understanding can be a way to help us to extend compassion to ourselves, um, to realize that um, we're not that way for no reason. Um, so <clears throat> let's see. Just to add um, one more quote to this point. Um, there's an Instagram account of a social worker that I really like. Um, her name is, actually, I'm not going to say that because, actually, I will say it because it's kind of long and I don't have it on the slides. So it's um, Kali Tai Cole. I'll just spell it because I'm already saying it and it's too late and I want to give her credit. C-O-L-I-E-T-A-I-C-O-L-C-S-W. Okay. She, yeah, she has um, a lot of insights into uh, like behaviors that from the lens of self-compassion. One of the things she says is that maybe being mean to yourself would get you the validation that you so desperately craved for your actual being. Um, and then uh, another one, uh, Instagram account, underscore Dr. Sof, D-R-S-O-P-H, says this quote that really just struck my soul. If we do not feel authentic validation for who we are, we may create a brand, a veneer, a shiny exterior, a layer of perfection that will please and catch other people's eyes. This is a survival strategy. The problem is when people validate us for this new part of ourselves, for example, weight loss, it doesn't hit the spot. Our search for validation does not end even if they pour praise onto us and into us. Why? Because part of us is always thinking, if they knew the real me, they wouldn't be saying that. And so self-compassion is um, a lens and a practice where we can get, we can, um, validate the core of who we are and extend a warm, loving energy um, into that. Um, so I just wanted to share, uh, we're kind of running out of time, so let me see here what I wanna say. Um, okay, one thought that I had um, from the Jesus tradition is, uh, we know Jesus wants us to love our enemies. This is what he taught. Um, he, um, and so, I'm not sure if we have that verse, but it, we do. Okay. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that, that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
No, I know that this verse can be used in um, harmful ways, but I thought of this verse. What if Jesus would like us to love the enemies in our minds? We often say we are our own greatest enemy. So could it be that we could use this teaching to say that maybe Jesus would want us to love um, ourselves, our minds. So I have found that to be a sort of corrective teaching and interpretation of that verse. Um, so one, another thing is... Um, inner child meditations. Um, so there's this concept that we all have an inner child inside of us. Um, when we were growing up, um, the inner child was uh, being conditioned by the world and learned lots of different you know, teachings and such, and that our inner child represents all of our needs and that as adults, we can um, reflect on our inner child and who we were in the past, and we can extend love and compassion to our inner child. Um, and so it's kind of um, seeing ourselves um, when we were younger uh, throughout like guided imagery meditations um, is also another um, tool to look for these inner child meditations to help to practice compassion on ourselves. And then um, <clears throat> God is love meditations, um, helping to focus on um, love as the essence of God and um, just focusing on that um, can also be helpful maybe not for everyone. Um, and then um, just two more things and then we'll be done. So we can reprogram our subconscious mind. So <clears throat> when we sleep, um, our subconscious mind is still taking in information from our external environment. So we can listen to audio recordings when we sleep of certain mantras that will help to form new thought patterns so that um, we will, over time, if we are persistent with this, we will have um, healthier thoughts that will make it easier to be kinder to ourselves. So you can make your own audio recordings, and there's a lot available on the internet. Um, and you don't have to do this when you're sleeping, um, but uh, it's been shown that uh, it can be helpful. Um, so repeating mantras uh, can be helpful, such as, I am enough, I am not a failure, I am worthy of love. Um, so I'll just close with this one poem that I really love by Ruby Carr. Um, it's called acceptance. If I am the longest relationship of my life, isn't it time to nurture intimacy and love with the person I lie in bed with each night? Thank you.